Welcome to the Tales of American History for a special Lincoln's Birthday podcast. This is the second in a series of new podcasts for the Witnessing History Education Foundation, where we are educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique free institutions. I am your host, Genevieve Brown, appearing today with Kent Masterson Brown, the president of the Witnessing History Education Foundation, and today's guest, Steve T. Fan, the chief of interpretation at Camp Nelson National Monument in Nicholasville, Kentucky. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org, the website of the Witnessing History Education Foundation. View for free the Foundation's documentary films on the website and on the Foundation's YouTube platform. Be sure to subscribe to our channel. You can listen to the podcast on YouTube as well. View also the Foundation's free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook and Twitter. Now, Take a journey back through time with Kent Masterson Brown and his guest, Steve T. Fan, and let their storytelling transport you to the most compelling moments in America's history. Steve is a park ranger and historian at the Civil War Defenses of Washington. He currently serves as the acting chief of interpretation at Camp Nelson National Monument in Nicholasville, Kentucky. He has worked at Richmond National Battlefield Park, Hopewell Culture National Historical Park, Stones River National Battlefield, Rock Creek Park, and the Buffalo Soldiers National Monument. A military scholar of the Civil War era, Fan's research focuses on military occupation, operational command, and fortifications during the Civil War. He's also the author of articles about Asians and Pacific Islanders in the Civil War, and on the defenses of Washington, which he's written for numerous publications. He was nominated for the National Park Service Tilden Award for Excellence in Interpretation in 2019. He holds a master's degree in American history from Middle Tennessee State University. Welcome, Steve. We're delighted you are here today. Steve, um, we've introduced you, but let me uh, make a personal welcome to you here at at our podcast. It's a delight to have you. And um, your reputation has preceded you. I don't know uh, whether that's all good or what, but uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, it has, uh, with, with your car and, and what have you, um, it certainly is noticeable. And um, also your, your scholarship has been terrific. Uh, so welcome. I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you so much, Ken. It's an honor to be with you Um Genevieve, um, who I met for the first time. She's incredible. And to be in Kentucky, uh, I call it Civil War Kentucky. And it's thrilling to be here. And you are correct on both fronts. Um, Famous, notorious, a little bit of everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you've you've done a lot of things, uh, Steve, and uh, a lot. you've, You've been at a lot of different parks in the national park system. Uh, and you're now at Camp Nelson, and that's really where I think I would like to concentrate uh, today. Um, as you as you probably are aware, there was a uh, camp established in 1861 just down the road and across the Kentucky River from Camp Nelson, uh, this being Camp Dick Robinson. 
And um, uh, that's where General, who would become General, at least then he was Lieutenant uh, Bull Nelson, got his start in the war, and that is recruiting troops. Um, but what I, why I bring that up is that uh, Camp Dick Robinson is just down the road, maybe uh, 10 miles at the most, from Camp Nelson. It's the road that Camp Nelson and Camp Dick Robinson are on, which is US 27 now. And um, that road um, ran literally from uh, Zanesville, Ohio, all the way to Florence, Alabama during the Civil War and in the years before. And of course, when you have a road like that, which is a macadamized turnpike, um, you want to protect it. So it's a, it's a long way of asking you a question about the formation of Camp Nelson, its original purpose. Um, and what, how would you characterize its original purpose given that road? That's a great question, Kent, and I think you're spot on with this. It's the communication and supply routes for the Army moving forward, uh, the Federal Army. And I've been calling Camp Nelson a forward operating base. Mm -hmm. Hey, we were talking about operations, Kent, you know, before right. this interview here, and that's what we have here. When General Ambrose Burnside is sent to the West with the elements of the Ninth Corps and He'll be assigned the reorganized Department of Ohio. He's going to create what he calls the 23rd Corps. And the 23rd and the 9th Corps form the new Army of the Ohio, the one that we—I mm -hmm. think that we think about the Army of the Ohio under Don Carlos Beale. But this is a new iteration of, yeah. uh, of this department, and he's tasked with, first and foremost— you know, occupying and controlling East Tennessee, right. which had been a mission for the Lincoln administration and the War Department for the first two years of the war. And mm -hmm. so um, he takes command of the department in late March of 1863. And by, by the end of April, he tells his engineers to, you know, select the basically su supply base or area where we can form a supply depot uh, south of Lexington between Hickman Creek um, and the um, and the Kentucky River, and um, that's what the engineers find this very formidable ground uh, where they're really protected on almost three sides, mm -hmm. and they're going to build this supply base, and it's going to be uh, quite massive, um, close to five thousand acres by the end of the Civil War, with uh, dozens and dozens of buildings, and you know from this point. Uh, moving forward um, in 1863, he's going to launch his uh, offensive into East Tennessee and capture Knoxville, you know, in conjunction mm -hmm. with uh, General uh, Rosecrans' movement towards Chattanooga. So first and foremost, I see this, Kent, as a Ford operating base. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can move men and supplies to Camp Nelson, and from there, you can shift things towards East Tennessee and then further points into the south, even parts of western uh, Virginia as well. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see some cavalry raids and things like that uh, that will occur over the next two years. Yeah. Um, it, it, it also, uh, just below uh, Camp Nelson— of course, is the Kentucky River. And the Kentucky River, uh, for all of us Kentuckians, I mean, is a spectacle uh, to see, really. Its palisades are just gigantic. I don't know of any other river in, in America that looks like them. Uh, but you've got those giant palisades, of course, which are make, make it utterly impregnable uh, from any attack from uh, or venture into central Kentucky from the south. Indeed. 
except for the fact there was a bridge there just below Camp Nelson. And it was an old Lewis Wernwag bridge is what they called them back then. It had uh, two s s diagonal or, 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 or um, uh, angular s trusses that came out from either side of the river uh, holding the bridge up. It was made entirely of pine and uh, poplar wood. Uh, it was built in 1838, but it was the only span beyond Frankfurt of the Kentucky River. And so you've, you've got that to contend with. If an invading force comes in, they got a bridge. So you want to command the bridge. You also want to command it for purposes of making sure whatever you do at Camp Nelson gets across the river or down into Tennessee and wherever you're going. But it is interesting that that, that corridor, uh, when Camp Dick Robinson was formed in 1861, it not only, Bull Nelson not only recruited uh, and trained Kentucky regiments there, infantry regiments and an, and an artillery battery, but also East Tennessee troops. So you've got the East Tennessee thing in 1861 on that turnpike, just like you do when Camp, Dick, uh, Camp Nelson was formed. Absolutely. And I, I find that that's one of the things I've found quite compelling. So I'm still doing research. I've, I've been um, in Kentucky for about a month now coming from Washington, D.C. And there's I see some similarities with some of the camps that sprung up in Washington, D.C. Um, obviously, the building of the fortifications around the northern and eastern <laughs> section of the camp, uh, very much like the defenses of Washington. And, um, yeah, you're right. They got the recruitment because um, I think um, a lot of people focus on, as they should, in 1864, the establishment of of black regiments, you know, United States oh, colored yeah. troops um, in uh, at, at Camp Nelson. Excuse mm -hmm. me. But, I, you know, we were doing research to try to basically do an order of battle of all the regiments that were organized at Camp Nelson. Mm -hmm. And you're right, Kentucky regiments and then regiments from East Tennessee as well. And then, you know, the camp also became a refugee camp, not only for enslaved African-Americans, you know, uh, the men and the women and their families. A lot of them will enlist with the United States Colored Troops. Uh, but there were refugees um, mm -hmm. from East Tennessee that fled to oh, central yeah. Kentucky during the Civil oh, War. Yeah. So you really see all angles of the Civil War here. Yeah, you do. You do. Let me ask you to do this. Um, a lot of people may have passed Camp Nelson in the car uh, who are Kentuckians or from around this part of the world. But there are probably a lot of people who are going to listen to this podcast who have never been here. And um, what, we're, what, what you are now, you are now the, 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 the historian for Camp Nelson National Monument. Um, and would you just kind of describe for people what it looks like today? Um, are there, are there earthworks still in existence? Uh, any buildings that date to the war era? Just a brief description of what it looks like so they may decide to go and take a look. Well, that's a wonderful question, and I'm glad you asked that, Ken. Um, you know, first and foremost, um, this is on behalf of the National Park Service. We'd like to commend and thank uh, Jessamine County and the Camp Nelson, uh, Nelson Foundation for the work they've done over the last 20 to 30 uh -huh. years of, you know, acquiring the land um, around where the camp was at 
And then within the past, you know, 15 or so years, they've established a visitor center there, uh, another building called the Barracks Building, uh, which is a replicated barracks building, which they would have had at Camp Nelson during the Civil War. And so when this was established as a national monument um, through the Antiquities Act in late 2018, uh, this became a national park site. But we're still in partnership with uh, Jessamine County um, for three years, and that agreement will end um, at the end of the fiscal year in September of this year. And so, you know, without the support, obviously, and the foundation, um, this site would not be here. This would not be a national monument site. So we're Mm -hmm. very grateful for this opportunity uh, to, you know, kind of build this up from from a really wonderful uh, county uh, site to a national monument as a part of the National Park Service. So I mentioned those two buildings here. There is a historic structure, which I know you've seen before. I'm sure you've been inside, (laughs) Kent, the the so-called White House, which was used as officers' quarters um, during the Civil War. It's in... um, it's been in better condition, so we're in the process of renovating the structure as we speak. And I know the superintendent will hear this conversation, uh, Ernie Price. He'll, um, you know what got me out here? The earthworks. There are earthworks out here. And so I— I figured that's yeah, what UK brought you out that's, here. That's what I've been—this uh, uh, is what was my great attraction. This was, you know, the— uh, this was I was the bee and this is the honey. This is what brought me out here because I had friends, you know, my earthwork friends tell me they're like, there are earthworks out. There's dirt and you're going to really enjoy this site. So, uh, yeah, there are rem- uh, remnant rifle pits. Uh, there are there's a reconstructed site that the county did under the direction of Dr. Stephen McBride, Fort Putnam. Um, and off on the eastern section of the park, um, off in the wood line there, there is these incredible period earthworks, including Fort Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, these were built by impressed enslaved African-Americans. And I was in shock when I saw um, what some of the building material was. In D.C., you know, they cut down trees and they excavated the dirt and, you know, built up these earthworks, these earthen walls, which they have done at Camp Nelson. But, you know, if you go off into the, the woods there, there's a lot of stone around. Mm-hmm. So in rock, and they, um, they basically built these revetments, the interior of the walls, uh, with stone. And I had not seen that in many other places related to the Civil War. So uh, these are absolute gems. And there's a couple of what they called uh, stone forts along the eastern side of the park as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look more like rifle pits to me. But um, they're actually in very good condition. So uh, we've mm. got um, a lot of um, unique cultural resources around the park. Uh, you were talking about you know, what's left from um, the Civil War. The majority, almost all the buildings, of course, other than the White House, were um, destroyed or taken down in March of 1866 when the camp was closed. Um, so it really is like an ar- archaeological-type landscape, right? And Dr. Mm-hmm. McBride's done a lot of you know, excavations and things like that over the years. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're going to use modern technology, uh, photography, digital media, and things like that to basically connect all visitors to the historic uh, landscape. That's our goal. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And, you know, as you're driving uh, down uh, U.S. uh, 27, this this site is just below the town of Nicholasville, about uh, 10 miles or so. Um, And um, as you're driving down and you look off to the left where the park is— uh, you can see the earthworks from the road. I mean, Fort, uh, what is it, Fort Jackson? That's right. And then uh, Fort uh, Pope. 
Um, you can see those, and you you have them marked by uh, yellow flags. I think they are. That's correct. And um, it and it's. Um, I mean, again, you can just see it. And of course, all those earthworks um, are on the north end of the fort of, of the of the of the camp because. They don't have the big palisades protecting exactly. them on that side, right? Well, what a formidable position and a natural mm. position, right? Uh, yeah. I think um, it was pretty clear why Major Simpson, from you know, the chief engineer of the Department of Ohio, chose that site. I mean, yeah. Yeah. if we can only fortify one section of uh, this camp here, uh, we've got the natural, you know, uh, ground with the palisades there. I mean, no one's going to breach those. No. <laughs> and I, th- I think you're right. Um, I'm still trying to read up on this. You talk about that, uh, that wooden bridge across the yes. the creek there or the river. Um, was that fortified at all? Well, they would, they would have, they would have had. Um, uh, troops positioned on the south bank of the Kentucky River uh, to protect it, and then troops positioned there okay. uh, at the uh, at the north bank. Um, but it's a uh, it's 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 the it, it was at its time the longest cantilever wooden cantilever bridge in America. Wow! And um, again, it's the only thing that crossed the Kentucky River anywhere, save at Frankfort. And um, uh, so naturally, you got to protect it, but it also provides you with access to move equipment, uh, supplies across the Ohio River, uh, the Kentucky River, and t- to deliver them where you want in Tennessee and elsewhere, and where the where the armies are fighting. Which makes a lot of sense because whenever there were threats against the camp in '63 and '64. Uh, the commanders of the camp always sent troops to the bridge because they yeah. knew that's where they would be coming from. And obviously, uh, they would gather the men to protect the um, – or operate the, or man the, the earthworks as well. But, right. yeah, that, that, all, that all makes sense. Wouldn't John Hunt Morgan love to have set fire to that bridge? <laughs> yes, he would have. Absolutely. So we're, we're going to be mentioning his name quite a bit. And so it's interesting. I, I did graduate school, as mentioned in my, uh, my biography at Middle Tennessee State in Murfreesboro. Yeah. So, you know, I did two years of almost three years of study on the Army of the Ohio, Cumberland and, you know, operations in this area into Kentucky. And all I heard was John Hunt Morgan blowing up (laughs) railroads and tunnels and just being a thorn in the side of federal authorities for like three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd have loved taking that bridge down. That would have been another feather in his cap. Yes, and he had a lot of feathers. So it would have have been quite the headdress for John Hunt Morgan. Yeah. Well, let's let's move forward in the in the story of um, Camp Nelson to um, uh, uh, I think Grant made a visit out here in in uh, on his way east, moving uh, in in January 1864. I think he made a recommendation that they close it down. That's correct. Yeah, and I think, and then Sherman had thoughts on it on it as well. I mean, as well as it was positioned. Um, Defensively and then even strategically, I mean, the route to East Tennessee was just so difficult for men and material, Mm -hmm. um, obviously horses and mules and things like that. It was just hard uh, to carry enough supplies to get troops into East Tennessee. So I think the idea was potentially to really close the camp, um, but the large influx of formerly enslaved people really shifted um, kind of the – the role of the camp from, you know, a Ford operating base and a kind of supply center uh, for Ford movement to a concentration camp for um, enslaved people and then uh, a recruitment camp for African-American soldiers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it, was it not 
uh, General Sherman that first made the uh, uh, a um, suggestion that that be uh, turned into a camp for uh, to recruit African Americans? I'm trying to recall the exact account of who thought about that. I I I, I can't recall if it's Sherman or. I know a, and a person that had a great influence on it was Lorenzo Thomas, the adjutant general of oh, yeah. the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in, he was involved with that as well. Yeah, Sherman, as you know, uh, uh, briefly occupied Camp Dick Robinson. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He he was con- in command of this, uh, where he um, wasn't he a part of the Department of Ohio yes. until he um, after Robert Anderson, correct? Yes, exactly. And uh, right after Robert Anderson, and and so he was in the uh, Richard Robinson house down there on the on US 27, just below Camp uh, Nelson. And uh, he would have known. Absolutely. He would have known. And uh, uh, and it, it's a good, a good segue into the story of the African-Americans at Camp Nelson, which is its huge story. Um, tell me, uh, tell the viewers, uh, listeners rather, um, uh, how, this, uh, how this transformation uh, came about from a pure supply depot to a camp for uh, recruitment and training of African-American soldiers. Well, Kent, as you know, with Civil War Kentucky, everything is complicated here, right? (laughs) And I am finding that more and more as I read. I mean, I thought being in D.C. was complicated and reading about the Civil War in the Capitol, which, of course, it is. It reminds me a little bit of of Maryland during the Civil War, right? A little bit. Because um, the idea that it was a border state and it's, you know, directly kind of connected to federal infrastructure. And so I've really started – that's really being unveiled to me as I dive deep into the history here. And, yeah, you know – just like um, parts all over the country here, wherever where there were federal troops in mass, enslaved African Americans came into federal lines, mm-hmm. right? This next step and this idea of emancipation, uh, no matter how soluble it was, and in many ways it was, and we will see that at the camp, um, there's there's really not this idea. I mean, this idea of stepping into freedom doesn't really happen. It's steps towards emancipation, which is um, very difficult and it's often taken away. And so it becomes, uh, you know, a contraband camp in many ways or a refugee camp. And the numbers absolutely explode. I think the big issue with Kentucky was the fact that it was a border state and Mm -hmm. that it was so, you know, it was a union state, you know, so federal laws did apply, including the Fugitive Slave Act. Right. Right. So this idea of you know, especially with the issue of the Emancipation Proclamation, which does not touch uh, the border states, especially Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you raise black troops in a state that's not in rebellion, <laughs> right? And that was the really big issue. Yeah. And it's just going to go through many uh, iterations, you know, and this yeah. will go all the way up to the War Department. Uh, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, will be involved as well. Right. And by, you know, kind of spring of 1864 is when things will change. Yeah. And from you know, from the idea of first, let, we'll compensate the slave owners to uh, we will recruit uh, black troops, but they can only be trained in other states yeah. to actually, you know what? Um, mil- military necessity calls for us to raise troops in Kentucky. We'll arm and clothe them now, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. And so that's going to be the start. And Ken, over the course of the Civil War, 10,000 men were recruited here. Yeah. Perhaps the third, we believe, largest recruitment camp in the country behind Philadelphia and New Orleans. That's, that's right. massive. That has quite the impact 
of the Civil War that show the importance of this site. And we're not only just talking about the men, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're joined by women and young children by the thousands. Yeah. And so uh, this becomes, as I said, a refugee camp. And so the Army, as they had done across the country, will start providing infrastructure uh, for these formerly enslaved people. You're going to see mm-hmm. um, a couple schools and churches pop up, um, but also structures uh, where they can find employment to support uh, the Union war effort um, through the duration of the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it's interesting. In, in 1863, um, when this camp really kind of comes about, um, you have a lot of African-Americans laboring to build all those fortifications that we can still see out there. Absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is uh, they were not compensated. Their owners were compensated. Yeah, so yeah. they were actually impressed. You know what this reminded me of, Kent? And I, I know you know the story. Fort Negley in, in Nashville, right? Yeah, right. Obviously, during the midst of the Heartland Campaign, the federal armies will impress enslaved people to build these uh, earthworks or even fortifications around the city of Nashville. Right. That's what you're going to see uh, at Camp Nelson as well. Yeah. So we know um, the earthworks built around uh, the camp on the northern and eastern section are and built are built by enslaved labor. Right. Um, and it was the so-called loyal owners uh, that were compensated, right? Yeah. So that adds like another element of the story here. Yeah. You know, and, and we these, the, these military authorities are operating under the uh, Confiscation Act of 1861, where the military had the absolute right to deny a property owner of his property uh, for military use. And um, if in the place where they're operating, a slave is considered property, then you can deny that property owner of his property. Right. And so this is where I take it they're getting them. Um, plus those who have basically refugeed into those into what was becoming Camp Nelson. So they get them in two ways. But then even if they refugee in there, they've got to have some legitimate reason why they can keep them there and, and, and use them. And um, they're taking these acts, like the Confiscation Act, to do so. Absolutely. I, I think, Ken, as we Civil War historians, we hear this term quite a bit. And we know it's a very vague term, right? Mm-hmm. Military necessity. <laughs> right. And that will ebb and flow and that will evolve in, uh, in many different ways, um, even in the same place that you're at, right? right and right. so I think one of the tragic stories that we have that we will highlight at Camp Nelson is the famous or infamous expulsion story. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so, and I, you know, if you read about the, these uh, so-called contraband camps or even army bases around parts of the country, it really depended on who the commander was of the camp about how African-Americans would be received as they came into the lines. So, right. you know, in late 1864 and um, during the winter time, there was what they called the expulsion where— well over 100 African-Americans, mostly women and children, were basically sent away from the, the camp, and many of them died of, you know, exposure. Mm-hmm. And it was a very dark—I think it's the darkest chapter of um, the history of the camp, and it's something that we uh, we have to really talk about and kind of um, mm-hmm. embrace as a part of this um, very difficult, complex story of the Civil War. Yeah, and it—and it, as you're— as you said, it is a particularly complex in a state like Kentucky, 
where you've, you, it's a slave-owning state, quarter of a million slaves in a three million population when the war began, the census of 1860. Um, and and you, you've got people here who uh, ally themselves with the Confederacy because of they may be slave owners, they may have a, a particular political interest in that or an economic interest in 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 siding with the uh, with the eleven Confederate states, or they may side with the Union because of their the, of the commercial effect of them not doing that. But the interesting thing about it is they both they both may be slave owners. Right. <laughs> Ken, I, I wanted to ask you about this yeah. uh, so we can kind of flesh it out a little bit. So I was talking to a local historian. Uh, he, he worked for the Park Service for a bit. He's got a Ph.D. and works in, if I can, if I know I'm pronouncing this probably incorrectly, Louisville. 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 Yeah. Okay, I'm, get, I'm getting there. All right. I'm, in, I'm a new transplant. Named for King Lua. <laughs> oh, King Lua. I see. Okay. That makes sense. It's it, it's all coming down to me okay. now. Okay. Um, he was talking to me about the reaction from white federal officers after the issue of the Emancipation Proclamation yeah. and how there was mass resignation amongst members of the Army of the, of the Cumberland. Mm-hmm. Um do you recall coming across a lot of those accounts? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because you you even find it in the Army of the Potomac. Okay, um, okay. I, I can remember. That's right. I can remember uh, reading uh, uh, memoirs and diaries of officers in the 20th Massachusetts Infantry. Now that's the Harvard. Regiment. Yeah, the Harvard guys. That's right. Um, and and they were resigning their commissions when the emancipation was issued, and you go what? I mean, this is this is a this is bizarre. I mean, wouldn't they be the first ones in the ranks up there to to uh, to eradicate slavery? They come to the war, they claim, because they wanted to preserve the Union, not right. to free the slaves. And this is the twentieth Massachusetts. So it, this uh, this is a civil war in its truest sense. Um, it is everybody against everybody in some way in some ways. When, if that's Massachusetts, imagine it in slave-owning Kentucky. Exactly. I'm glad you made that 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 um, comparison there, right? And wow. Uh, there's a um, uh, a great story. One of the regiments raised at Camp Dick Robinson was the first Kentucky Cavalry, a Union command, of course, um, and um, it's. Um, uh, it, it, it it was uh, it, it had a distinguished record during the war, and uh, its commander was Frank Wolford, and Frank was a really wild kind of character. It, the photographs of him make him look like he's just been on a six day bender, <laughs> uh, hair all over the place. He's a wild looking man, but um, he was he was an, a, an incredibly effective cavalry commander, regimental commander. He helped capture John Hunt Morgan, not Morgan himself, but much of Morgan's command, and um, it uh, at uh, up in Ohio, and uh, but but Frank uh, was as loyal as you get until Lincoln issues the Emancipation, and Frank then is seen here in Lexington. Um, giving a speech at a place called Old Melodian Hall, which still stands down on Main Street. I'll show it to you someday, Steve. Can't wait to see it. Um, And the speech is a diatribe 
against Lincoln and the emancipation. And of course, he has a ready, willing audience cheering him on. Even though, you know, half of these people from this town were Confederate, half of them were not. Right. And as a result, the, the Lincoln administration hears about this and orders his arrest. <laughs> and so he's arrested and taken to Nashville. And um, eventually they release him because just his presence is worth a full brigade of cavalry. And so they release him. And, and it, it, it doesn't take long before the Lincoln administration uh, uh, accedes to allowing African-Americans to join the Union ranks. Then he starts it again. And uh, he's arrested. But here is one of the most prominent military figures in the Union Army in Kentucky. And this is what he does. Wow. Oh, uh, and you can just imagine a lot of people who are just privates, sergeants, lieutenants, right. in the ranks, you know, uh, who have similar feelings. There are those who do not. But it is a civil war in its truest sense. Um, and it's what makes it so difficult as, as, as someone interested in history like you and me to f flesh out <laughs> what each of these things mean. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's never been – it's – you know, I think – you know, that's why history is so complex, right? It is. And so when you see a figure like this gentleman you're talking about, I mean, w willing to die for the union, right? Right. Well, absolutely. Um, but there were certain things that he certainly um, did not fight for, and he made his point heard yeah. um, against the detriment of his even career. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a topic probably for another day uh, with you and me, but. Um, it is certainly one that comes into play here uh, with respect to Camp Nelson. Um, when Lincoln issues his proclamation uh, of emancipation in January of 1863, um, that only applied to slaves living in the Confederate states, right? Right. So it didn't apply to Kentucky because Kentucky wasn't a Confederate state. And I, I would go even further, Kent. Uh even even in the states in rebellion, if the Union's army isn't around, then good luck, right? <laughs> where, where are you going to go, right? Well, that's, that's exactly right. And I, I think uh, Dr. Amy Taylor from the University of Kentucky really talks about this, you know, is, you know, the first step towards the emancipation is towards the Union forces, either mm -hmm. the army or the Navy. And by the way, they might be in this town for a few months, but they could pull out, you right. know, depending on what happens with operations. Right. And that could be... For a lot of African Americans, the end of their their first step towards emancipation, and they might be re-enslaved again, right. or their status is unknown, and they have to kind of figure out the next step moving forward. And we definitely see that in Kentucky. Oh yeah, you know it's really what's always. And Amy, by the way, is a great person. She's done a podcast with me before too, and um, I love her book on slave camps. Um, she's done some uh, monumental work in that. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, for those of you who are listening and don't know Amy Taylor, she's a professor of history at the University of Kentucky here in Lexington. Um, let me uh, – let's, let's kind of walk through uh, from the emancipation. Uh, it becomes effective January 1. Um, it only freed slaves in the, in the Confederate states, the states in rebellion. Uh, Kentucky was not in rebellion. Um, so it had fundamentally no effect here. However, that didn't stop 
African-American slaves from cutting loose and trying to get to Camp Nelson, right? Absolutely. And I, and you're, you're going to see this across the country because we definitely see this in Washington, D.C., or the, or the Army did. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, um, which was really interesting because you see the contrast, right? Like, oh, yeah. uh, and, and I, 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 I'm thinking the same with, with Tennessee and Kentucky because from the Virginia perspective, uh, if enslaved people were coming from Virginia, we'll take them in, right? right. Because uh, Virginia's in rebellion and right. uh, they've been using these people against us, you know, mm-hmm. to build fortifications and things like that. And so uh, the, the issue was Maryland. Maryland, again, was like Kentucky, a border state. There were enslaved people just slipping across the border into Washington, D.C., and it became a major issue. And mm-hmm. you see this within the regiments themselves. Right. Um, because um, the you know so-called you know enslaver or the slave owner was allowed to come into camp to retrieve his so-called property, mm-hmm. and many did that. Mm-hmm. Um, the only issue was now they were, you know, a lot of these, especially the men and young boys, were were working for the army, and so in many cases they were protected by the federal soldiers, yeah. and so you're going to see a lot of tension between um, federal soldiers and um, the so-called, you know, and then what what they believed as secessionists, they, a lot of them considered all um, slave owners secessionists. That's Maryland. Can you imagine Kentucky, what that looked like, oh, no. right? No. Um, as, as we talked about this idea of what, what, what exactly does loyalty mean? Well, you know, you could be, uh, you, could, you could own dozens of people, um, even be against the federal government, but you could swear an allegiance to so-called the union and you'd be fine. No one would touch you, right? Especially um, once they were recruiting African-Americans. But I think you make a great point, Kent. Um, 1863, um, African-Americans are just showing up to these federal encampments and outposts and things like that. And they're really pressing um, the army, which is an extension of the federal government, to do something. Like, we're going to be here, so... You know, what are you going to do? Yeah. And so um, that's kind of this really interesting intersection between um, enslavement and emancipation, right? right. And the arm, of, um, the arm of the federal government, the army is having to deal with this on the ground. So, you know, if you read what's going on in Kentucky, we, we don't know what's happening. Yeah. You know, each commander, like, is trying to figure out what do we do? Do yeah. we send these people away? Do I feed them? Do incredible. I hire them on to help us build yeah. for You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, no. it's, it's all this. And mm-hmm. oh my goodness, it's, well, it, it'll keep you researching this for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, it really will. And, and, I, and it gets even more complex as, as the deeper you get into this. Um, uh, okay. The emancipation frees them in the Confederate states. It, Poor, the poor slaves in Kentucky, uh, it's incredible, can't do anything about it, even though I think many of them tried right. to, to go into the union ranks, which created a problem. But I bring this up because it's incredible. Amy Taylor and I talked about this, too, uh, rather extensively, uh, was that here they here he pro- Lincoln proclaims the slaves free. But then what? Exactly. Then what? Who's going to enforce this, right? Where are uh, they going to go? Where are they going to go? Um, what's going to happen next? Um, yeah. Do we... What happens to the enslaved person in Kentucky compared to this enslaved person in Tennessee, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I know a, a line, this, this state line separates them. They're still both enslaved. 
Um, the ones in Tennessee, hey, they're free, right? They're they're better off, right? I mean, <laughs> What's to your, a degree, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the way they are, and yeah. I think um, you're going to really see this issue in, in Kentucky, especially at Cam Nelson, as the commanders are trying to figure things out. From as I said before, this idea of compensating the slave owners to hey, we we can recruit them, but we have to send them out of state. To finally in 64, no, we're going to recruit them here. We're going to organize them here. Um, they can do occupation duties in uh, Kentucky right. all along, you know, the rivers and things like that along the Tennessee border. And then other troops go and fight in Virginia, yeah. end up, you know, um, in Mexico towards the end of the Civil War. So it's really interesting to see how quickly this evolves yeah. um, for African-Americans. And the thing is, what happens next? And yeah. so that's one of the things we really focus on and we will moving forward, Kent, is, you know, the camp is around in the beginning of Reconstruction, right? So, right. you know, the major hostilities end by 1865 or mid-65, um, but there are regiments that were organized in uh, uh, at Camp Nelson that are still in the field, yeah. that go out to Mexico and serve with Sheridan's <laughs> armies, right? <laughs> Um, can you imagine? Can you? Oh, my God. A lot of those men uh, were apparently, um, you know, some of them mutinied because they're like, why are we on the Mexican border right now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with that whole incident, you know, with the emperor puppet and all that stuff. Um, and so the camp survives or is kept active until March of 1866. Yeah. That's pretty late, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it actually reminds me of the defenses of Washington a bit because uh, the majority, um, I'd say about 20 of the forts were kept around until March of 1866. And uh, the majority of them were garrisoned by black soldiers, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. And so you're going to see kind of the same thing. You're, you're going to have these USCT troops from Cap Nelson out in different parts of the country. Um, and then they're going to formally close the camp in March of 1866. And this is the most, I think, important aspect of this, Kent. When they when the army pulls out, they don't leave the structures here, right? Mm-hmm. They take everything down. Yeah. Meaning all this infrastructure, you had the barracks, the hospital, um, these buildings, which you would have worked in, these shops and things like that, kitchens, whatever, all those are going down mm-hmm. because there's this idea – um, certainly uh, promoted by the local white inhabitants is we're not we're not allowing some big black community to form up in this area where the camp used to be. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have this um, really max uh, a massive exodus of African-Americans from this area once the camp was closed in 1866, including, Kent, the famous exodusters that go mm-hmm. out to Kansas. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of people that will cross the Ohio River into Ohio um, and start a new life after the Civil War. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a small community um, by the Fee Church, as you know, that will start this kind of freedmen's type of church uh, led by this reverend who's there to educate African-Americans and really build this kind of post-war free society. And it kind of ebbs and flows through the decades um, after the Civil War. Um, But that's why, you know, the landscape is so different now than it was during the Civil War. I mean, I can't imagine many buildings would have survived after the war, especially these army uh, structures. But everything was taken down. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to set something up here for our chat here. Um, right after the emancipation became effective, the, the Edwin Stanton, and you mentioned this at the at the head of this talk, 
Uh, he authorized, the War Department authorized the recruitment and training of African-Americans um, uh, uh, right after the emancipation became effective. So here you have the War Department saying, okay, sure, we can use you, you can come into the, into the, into the Army. And if they did, they would be emancipated from slavery in exchange for their military service. Right. And um, uh, this is what, of course, set up Camp Nelson uh, uh, to become a training uh, center and for Kentucky and, and recruiting center for United States colored troops. And then to answer the, the dilemma uh, in Kentucky where the emancipation didn't apply, uh, Governor Thomas Bramlett um, uh, uh, agreed in 1864 that African-American men in Kentucky could join the army uh, with consent of their owners who would be paid. And you mentioned this. Right. That they could be paid, what, $300 or something per, per slave. So we've got all that. Now Kentucky slaves, according to the state government, can do this. Uh, they can leave, go into the army, et cetera, et cetera. But here's another thing that just, it always got me. The Lincoln administration never considered what about the male slaves dependents, his wife, his children, what happens to them? Right. And um, I think this is a question, can you see across the areas where there are federal, where, where there's federal occupation or outposts? I think as early as 1862. Yeah. Um, because in 1862, we heard, we you know, we talk about the contraband decision at Fort Monroe with Benjamin yeah. Butler, right? And yeah. There's a trickle, and then there's a wave of enslaved people that come into federal lines, and some of them are sent up to Washington, D.C. to work on the fortifications around the Capitol. Uh -huh. And Ben Butler says, what about their families, their yeah. dependents? Yeah. And the, uh, the War Department says, we don't want them up here. They're like, well, I can't in good conscience send up the men and leave the uh, the, the children and, and women, the families here, right? right? right. Um, so how was that decided in Kentucky? Is that ever decided? About the dependents? Yes. No, no, no. Uh, Bramlett's uh, orders only directed itself toward men. Just like, you know, it, 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 the War Department said, oh, yeah, men, ex-slave men can come in the Army. Well, what about the women? Right. And Bramlett's um, just did not go far enough either. Bramlett, show you how Kentucky is so screwed up. Bramlett, Bramlett was elected governor in 1863 as a, quote, union Democrat. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. What wow. is that? Right. <laughs> since since the, the idea of the Democrat with a big, large D before the Civil War meant you were a secessionist. Right. Um, here's a union Democrat. Do you would you say that he was aligned in politically with, like, Andrew Johnson? Is that a good comparison? Oh, yes. oh okay. I think it's a good comparison. Okay. Yeah. And the Lincoln administration really loved him. He raised a, a regiment of, uh, of uh, infantry uh, when the war broke out. He's a well-known character. He actually was one of those who came in here and, and secreted the, the, uh, the muskets out of Lexington to take to Camp Dick Robinson. <laughs> Oh, that um, famous story. So he was a part of that. Oh huh? yeah. Okay, yeah, I was. see. Yeah. So he's he's shown his his union stripes, um, and um, but he was a slave owner, and he 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 the the, right. the slave uh, uh, vote in this state was important to him, 
And so what a mix-up. Um, but so his his allows that so long as the owner is compensated three hundred bucks, the slave can be uh, used by the army. And, and I'm, tr- can, I'm trying to because as I said, I'm still learning this myself. And so we've got the idea of compensation, correct? Mm-hmm. And obviously by sixty four, that's going to change. What's going to cause that to change? Where the army is just going to accept African Americans without compensating the owners? Uh, victories, victories, one after another. Uh, in the West is going to do it, um, and in the East, um, the um, that's it's just power, uh, having successfully exercised power. I think that's really the answer. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that makes sense because obviously, you know, definitely before you know, obviously sixty three moving forward, it's yeah. like, hey, we're still having some issues with you know some of our offensives and some of our campaigns uh, across the country. But by 64, especially mid-64, um, there's going to be a momentum for the federal armies and navies. Then that's where the power can come from the government to, to enforce kind of their own version of right. enlistment, correct? Right. Exactly. And, you know, these soldiers uh, coming into Camp Nelson to uh, be recruited and trained, uh, who follows them? Their wives and of course, children. Of course. And this is what sets up the problem that you talked about earlier. And that is you've got all these dependents of these soldiers. And what's, the, what's Camp Nelson going to do with them? They refer to them as refugees. Right. Yeah. I, and I think that was – can you imagine being the, you know, oh. um, the authorities and this no. idea of like, no. uh, hey, we're enlisting me- your husband. Um, and can you imagine the husband saying, well, my, my family gets to stay at this camp while I go off and fight, Correct. Well, um, we're not exactly <laughs> yeah. sure about yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you, I'd love to hear you elaborate on this. The suffering of those wives and children. Um, these are among those that the Speed Fry, the commander of Camp Nelson, moved out. That's right. Yes, and as I said, it was uh, dependent on who the commander of the camp was, yeah, right? Who had yeah. different ideas and dependent on what troops came into camp, right? Because you can right. imagine there would be uh, women and, and children like staying in some of the barracks if the army had moved on. Right. But there were so many units that came and went from the camp. They were thrown out and eventually they were completely pushed out of camp. Yes. And so you're talking about people that are taking their first steps from enslavement mm-hmm. to this idea of emancipation. They're coming into federal lines. They're, you know, they're exhausted. They're sick. They're, they're sick. malnourished. They're right. bundled together and exposed to disease. Right. And then you're going to throw them out of camp in the middle of winter. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. Right. They're going to die. They're going to die. And it's going to be uh, one of the most tragic events, I think, of um, of the Civil War in many ways. Yeah. And, um because you're thinking about the men that joined the United States Colored Troops and are off to fight, and their families are left behind. And if their families are treated like this, you know, what what are the men at the front fighting for, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, what are they thinking? Yeah. And so it's one of those moments that, uh, as I said, we're not going to shy away from. It's going to be something that we will um, we'll talk about at all different angles and get people to – uh, the public to know this story and know right. these narratives, and hopefully we can, um, you know, learn something from it. That's yeah. that's our goal. You know, I, I Amy and I talked about this um, uh, a lot, and that is uh, 
the, the whole concept of refugees because um, her book is about refugee camps. Uh, there was no uh, established system to take care of refugees. We've seen in, in modern times, you can see on the television, whenever there's a uh, fighting is raging in Iraq or wherever the hell in the world it is, you see refugees You all do, the time, indeed. By the hundreds of thousands. And can you imagine the number of refugees the Civil War caused? Um, the deeper Union armies penetrated into Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. Uh, they left streaming behind uh, countless refugees. Um, we, we, in, in Lexington, we had a, a little girl who uh, was an epileptic. She lived on Gratz Park. And um, she kept a diary during the war. And John Hunt Morgan's mother lived across the street. Wow. And she would watch who would come and go and okay. record in this little diary of hers. But she says in this diary that the refugees streaming into Lexington off of the Richmond Road. This is the road to the town of Richmond, mm -hmm. just south of on the other side of the Kentucky River. And... And it was an endless stream day after day after day. And naturally, it would be. I mean, you're, the, the army and the war is displacing these people. Mm -hmm. And what do they do? They seek, they seek refuge f far behind the lines of combat. They don't want to be in that. Right. So they keep going and they keep going. And um, so you have... African-American refugees, because in the Deep South, those slaves are, text, are being freed by, the, by these Union armies, but nobody's given them any shelter. Mm -hmm. And then you have whites as well. Right. In one mass groups coming into Kentucky. And um, what happens then? And in fact, um, one of the reasons in Kentucky that in 1864... Um, we were ready to vote Lincoln out in Kentucky was because of the refugee problem. And it's the reason Kentucky's legislature uh, voted to nullify the Emancipation Proclamation. Wow. Can you imagine that? Because of the fear of refugees. And this is white and black refugees, yes, correct? Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yes. Of all, all kinds. So let me ask you, Kent, was there a difference between the way uh, black refugees were compared, um, treated compared to whites? You know, I can't find any um, uh, people who are sick, um, uh, in tatters. Um, you know, what do you do with any of them? Right. Um, uh, I, I, I asked Amy this once. I said, Amy, how many do you think died, just died along the roads or in shanty camps that where they got disease, just like happened at Camp Nelson, where you lost over 100 at one time when, when Speed Fry moved them all out. And those were dependents, mostly of those poor soldiers. Indeed. Um, but what do you do with just Mr. Refugee? White, black, doesn't matter. Um, uh, who's going to take care of them? There's just nothing there. Nothing. And... Um, I guess th that's why you see... Um I think uh, a couple of different things with this. The Army provides some sort of infrastructure in a way, don't they, 
uh, can't, you know. They do now. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, yes. And well, I think even back then, this, I mean, I, I understand that they're coming into these lines, you know. But with the establishment of, you know, places like Camp Nelson, um, the army is there. And mm-hmm. the army is there in force. And the army has the men and material to basically provide more opportunities for these people than they would have anywhere mm-hmm. else, right? Mm-hmm. Especially, especially as escaping enslavement, mm-hmm. because I, one of the stories about Cam Nelson, especially in 1865 into 66, is um, you know some of these um, um, organizations that are sent from the you know from the north to come and, and basically help these people oh, in yeah. their next steps. Um, you know, some of them are sent to northern cities, especially the women, to become like the domestic laborers. Oh yeah. You know, that's kind of like the next step. You know, post Civil War is, you know, um, the movement of African Americans into some of these northern cities to do domestic labor work. And I guess I never made the, you know, the connection that this started actually during the Civil War. Yeah. Because you think of, I'm sure, you know, students of history, or even if you're in college, you hear about the Great Migration and the Second Great Migration in the early 1900s, but you don't really think about migration during the Civil War No, for refugees, right? No. And I, I think no. that's going to be something that we're going to touch on. I, I, I'll tell you, I think, um, uh, Steve, it would be a terrific thing for you to touch on. Um, I, I've, I've read there upwards of 1,300 refugees died at Camp Nelson um, of disease. And uh, that wouldn't surprise me a bit. I mean, look at the road it's on. Right. It's a main boulevard uh, out of the lower south. And, um, um, I mean, it's a huge issue to me. Um, And I I think it's a huge issue in the study of the war. Um, Well, okay, it becomes a recruiting and training place for African-American soldiers, United States colored troops, as they were referred to then. Uh, Tell us, uh, if you would, um, the troops that were mustered or units that were created there and um, where they went, where they fought. Yeah, this is interesting, Kent. This is more complex than I thought it would be. I was just, you know, when you think about United States colored troops, you immediately think about the infantry, right? The regiments, the, the enlisted regiments of infantry and which will have uh, at least four regiments of United States Colored Troops infantry here, mm-hmm. uh, most notably being the 114th and 116th. And you'll appreciate this, Ken. I'm sure your viewers as well. Uh, before I came over here, I had a meeting with um, my colleagues in the National Park Service. We're at Richmond National Battlefield Park, Petersburg National Battlefield, and Appomattox. <laughs> Appomattox, Appomattox, right? And so those units, you know, um, both those units, they kind of took different routes to get to Virginia, but they ended up with the all-black Army of the James, well, the 25th Corps of the Army of the James. Mm -hmm. They're going to fight around Richmond and Petersburg, uh, and they're going to end up at Appomattox. So we're actually working on a video that basically traces these two units um, at all these National Park Service units, which is is exciting, right? Um, Oh, yeah. Because I I think um, the idea that there were so many of uh, these uh, regiments that did garrison duty, which they did, of course. Right. But some of these units saw some heavy action. Right. And, right. Ken, these were the same uh, regiments that ended up in Louisiana and Texas uh, in 1865, 1866. Um, one of them mustered out in 1867. Wow. 
long after the Civil War. Wow. And then you can wow. even make it even further. I talked to, you know, and as your wife mentioned, I worked at Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers. Yeah. Um, one of the units, I believe the 116th, 100 men from the regiment enlisted with the 9th U.S. Cav. <laughs> Is and that then right? I, I also believe, uh, <laughs> and the 39th Infantry, these are what became known as the famous Buffalo Soldiers. These are the regular army units that were or, or created in 1866 when the uh, regular army was expanded after the Civil War. Yeah. So think about that. Um, we also have some heavy artillery units, um, the 12th and 13th United States Colored right. Heavy Artillery. Um, uh, the 12th, there's actually a reactivated living history yeah, group that we work with. I'm sure yeah, you know them, yeah, Kent. Yeah, they're really good chaps. Oh, they're yeah. they're wonderful. <laughs> and so we're very proud in the Park Service um, from Camp Nelson that – you know, they're going to represent the Park Service at all these events. Um, I'm fortunate to, um, to be the um, historic weapons advisor, so we'll be out shooting cannons at different events and at the park and things like that. Um, and I want to talk to you more about this because I, I, I know you've got a deep knowledge of this. The 5th and the 6th U.S. Colored are uh, cavalry. Cavalry. Cav. Yeah. Something that you don't hear about too much no. during the Civil War, no. especially the 5th. Um, you know, Saltsville and stuff Salt, like that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about them? Well, I, all, all, all I know is that they, they served at um, Saltville under Stephen Burbridge. That's right. Uh, Burbridge, interestingly, um, he was the military governor of, of Kentucky during, the, during much of the war. Um, the what, mid- a, what a character, huh? Yeah. You know, he is the one who put a stop to Speed Fry. Uh, a removal, removal of of dependents out of Camp Nelson, and I, I think that was the one humane thing Burbridge did in his lifetime. Wow, um, he's the one who's been noted for executing uh, Confederate uh, prisoners of war. He'd have them draw straws whenever a, a Union picket was killed. That's or, right. He'd have them draw straws, and the guy who got the the, the small straw wound up being taken out of a prison and shot. He was known as the butcher, correct? The butcher. Wow. And he became so, uh, uh, the, the state became so angry at him uh, that uh, when he moved out of here, but he was even afraid when he was living in Brooklyn, New York, his last years of his life, to stand in front of a lighted window at night for fear someone would see him and shoot him. Wow. Um but Burbridge at least did one good humane thing, and that is he brought a stop to Camp Nelson's commander removing the dependents out of there after that horrible episode. Um, but he commanded the Union force at Saltville, and uh, the 5th and um, uh, particularly the 5th uh, United States Colored Cavalry was involved in that. And and of course, sadly, again, uh, were the victims of a massacre at the end of that. Um, uh, it's a tough war. It is a tough, tough, tough war. Yeah, Ken, I was going to say this reminds me of the work I did in graduate school, especially. So I, I focused on federal occupation of Middle Tennessee um, all the way down to the Alabama border, right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, oh, yeah. as the Union Army shifts further south, they're setting up these garrisons, the garrison towns. Right. And as you know, the garrison might have half a regiment, a couple companies. Right. Surrounded by um, hostile citizens, guerrillas. Right. I mean, there's a lot of guerrilla activity from what I'm reading in um, in, in, in Kentucky, correct? Oh, Especially yeah. near Camp Nelson. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Um, in in Kentucky, it was um, it was it had its own civil war. Kentucky did. Yeah, I was going to say, and I don't want to jump off on this tangent too much, but I think I saw, I was just reading in the ORs, we were talking about the official records before we got on um, the recording mm-hmm. here, and I think it was an order from Speed Fry to one of his, um, it, it, I actually think it might have been Burbridge, mm-hmm. telling one of his local commanders, he's like, if you capture these gorillas, he's like, I don't want any of them uh, alive, basically. Yeah. Like, keep no prisoners, right? Yeah, right, right. And, of course, those who perpetrated the uh, virtual execution of wounded uh, United States colored troops at Saltville, at least the first battle at Saltville, um, were indeed executed uh, for that uh, outrage. Um, but um, now, I, Camp Nelson has a phenomenal story, um, uh, Steve, and uh, it, it's it, it's one that I'm so happy has you. <laughs> well, thank working, you, sir. Working working there, it's a it's a place that. Um, needs to come out even more to, into the consciousness of, of folks uh, 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 in America around here, but also in America generally. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying consciousness. That's something that we're uh, very much focused on. And then I guess I was going to say real quickly, and uh, Mill Springs is in that n- now also a national park unit. Yeah. So we've got this Civil War heritage area or, you know, this corridor of Civil War sites um, that can really— um, you know, inspire people to learn more about the the really deep complexities of this war, which we've been talking about for the past hour or so. Yeah, and you know the uh, the Camp Dick Robinson site is is there for people to see. The Richard Robinson House still stands right down the road from Camp Nelson, and then of course there's Perryville, the uh, battlefield there, which I remember years ago when uh, we started the uh, the commission to uh, expand the battlefield. It was 99 acres, and um, I worked on that for about 11 years, but now it's nearly 3,000 protected acres. And that's, that, is, that is crying out for an addition to the National Park Service. Uh, it's a spectacular place and looks today just as it did in 1862 when the battle was fought there. Um, you're right. It's, it is a, that, from Camp Nelson down is a corridor of, um, of Civil War history. I'll, let me ask you really quickly, Kent. Yeah. I want to really um, get your insight on this. It, it only, I guess I'm new to, really to Kentucky. I spent three years in graduate school in Tennessee. But, you know, the more I dive in and just dig and dig and I just find just how complex and unique and dramatic Civil War Kentucky is, why isn't Civil War Kentucky on the national consciousness as Virginia is or South Carolina or even Pennsylvania with Gettysburg or, you know, Tennessee with um, Nashville and Stones River and Shiloh and things like that? Well, I think it's it was simply the way the war was fought um, would be my answer to that. Um, uh, Naturally, the war was fought in the east, meaning Virginia, between the capital of the Confederacy, which became Richmond, Virginia, and the Union, the national capital at Washington. And the war was fought there. And of course, there's where the newspaper interest was, Um, even to the exclusion of some of the great victories out in the West, like Shiloh and Vicksburg and Chickamauga and what have you, uh, and Chattanooga. but nevertheless, the, the newspaper concentration was there. Those were the, quote, big battles right. to the news. 
um, in spite of the fact that some of the engagements in the West were every bit as large as Gettysburg, uh, every bit as important as as um, uh, Gettysburg or Spotsylvania or the wilderness or whatever, um, still the news concentrated in the East. So that is like in a in a in a place all by itself, the East, Virginia. And to this day, uh, it's still battlefield haven, uh, heaven for those who want to visit Civil War battlefields. Absolutely. Um, only, only second to that comes uh, states like, like Tennessee, and um, because major battles were fought there, Shiloh, uh, Chattanooga, uh, Murfreesboro. You were in the park at uh, Murfreesboro, worked at the uh, military park at Stones River, um, and. Um, uh, in Franklin. And, and because of that, uh, Tennessee takes a big place because there are big battles fought there. Kentucky, as you can see here, uh, has been bypassed <laughs> because of the size of the conflict in Tennessee and ultimately Mississippi and Georgia uh, and Virginia. And so we're we were we were considered kind of a support system for it, a backwater. We were invaded once, uh, which resulted in the invader Confederate army being turned back, headed back to Tennessee. But uh, aside from that one invasion in October, September, October, eighteen sixty-two culminating at the Battle of Perryville, there really was no other major conflict here, battle I'm talking about. So it has just, you know, it's been re relegated to kind of the backwater of the Western theater. And that's sad. But nevertheless, you can see why it happened, and it's only human that it would happen. Sure. And it's up to us, I think, uh, across the, all of us who love this stuff and are interested in it, to do whatever we can to make sure people see it, go there, understand it, because what Kentucky did in this war was important to the war. Oh my goodness! And um, yeah, absolutely, more yeah. and more, I see that, and I, I really see this is kind of frontline understanding of the complexities of the war yeah. in so many different ways, and. Heck, you know, we talk about, well, when, you know, we talk to students and things like that, like what was Kentucky or what was, what were the border states, you know, like people mm -hmm. can name the border states. Can we really talk about what happened in the border states? Yeah. Like this yeah. is intense, intense, yeah. intense um, and dramatic and complicated and, and in many ways tragic. Yeah. But I think you're right. It, it's really our mission to, to, um, to, to connect people to these sites and stories. Right, right. Well, I want to tell everyone who has been patient and listening to us uh, today that um, uh, to take yourself and your family and come to Lexington. If you live here, then join the rest of this entourage and drive south on US 27 past Nicholasville and visit um, Camp Nelson. Um, and uh, your visit, I would encourage you to get out uh, go to the museum, uh, go to the reconstructed barracks, uh, and to the, uh, the the White House that you see there, um, which was the headquarters of, uh, Gen of General Speed Fry, um, and um, and then walk around. There, there, there are 
uh, places, uh, uh, routes marked out for you to take hikes along the all the, the earthworks and gun emplacements around uh, Camp Nelson that were built by African-Americans. And take yourself back in time to just the sheer size of the, of the, of the African-Americans, the population there, who, create, who went into these regiments of United States colored troops and served in Western Virginia and then served in Grant's army that ultimately wound up at Appomattox. It is a stunning story. And it's something we should all be proud of, uh, how the perseverance, the, uh, what these people went through in order to make this happen. They're worthy of, of our, of our, um, of our um, uh, respect beyond all measure. So I hope all of you do. And to my friend Steve, I want to thank you for being with us. This is only the first time now. You're, you've got some other Yeah, we're just getting do. started. Uh, <laughs> um, you're right. And I'll say just real quickly, it's humbling being at this site and learning about these stories, uh, both triumphant and, and, um, and tragic. And I would mention that um, at the moment, this is uh, February of 2021, um, the buildings are closed, but the site remains open to visitation, the trails, and, and you know, as, as Kenton was saying, go out and, and walk and bring your dog with you um, on your leash and just walk around, and, and there's waysides out there. You can really learn about this site, and hopefully in the coming weeks and months, we'll slowly start to reopen, uh, do more programming and things like that, and, you know— we can learn about the Civil War. We don't have to learn about George Meade and the things he did at Gettysburg. <laughs> we can learn about uh, Ambrose Burnside, the former the former commander of the Army of Potomac, and the things he did out here. So I had to throw that in there, my okay. friend. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Gee, thank you so much for 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 being with us. And for those of you out there, uh, you'll be able to. Um, Listen to this podcast on Witnessing History Education Foundation website, which is witnessinghistory.org. And you will also be able to listen to it on the Witnessing History Education Foundation YouTube channel. And um, they will be posted within the next few days. So thank you for tuning in. And thanks again, Steve, for joining us. Thank you. It was a wonderful experience. and I look forward to being back. You bet. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.